The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. Thank you for coming out. It's really cool that we're here. This is unique. Uh, if the power comes on in the middle of the service and we start hearing all kinds of crazy stuff, just bear with us and we'll turn it all off and stay unplugged. <laughs> you never know in this kind of context. You guys who are here visiting uh, from Multnomah, welcome. Uh, I think all of our staff pastorally came. Yeah, welcome again. I graduated from Multnomah twice. Uh, Danny, our worship pastor, who's not here today, Mark is filling in, but Danny's from Multnomah, so is our other pastor, Andrew, and so we've got some, uh, some fellowship with us in that, but it's really good to have you up here. Um, afterward, one thing Kim mentioned in the announcements, just so you're clear on it, and this is for everybody, if you want to serve in one of the places that we need people to serve in, you want to give of your time and resource that way. After the service, when we're having tacos, you'll see little stations back there for youth ministry or working with the children or whatever it is that you're gifted for or kind of want to try or whatever. I know I had to do student ministry stuff. There's lots of opportunity here, so feel welcome to do that. And if you're not in that, don't worry about it at all, but it's back there for you. Okay, I want to start with some advice for college students, because that's what you want. You want old people you don't know at all giving you advice. <laughs> it's awesome, all right? I was, uh, I was very, very, very nervous when I was coming up on age 17. I have to graduate. Uh, I have to then go to college or I'm gonna die. And when you go to college, you have to choose your eternal career path right now. And, and it's just terrifying and overwhelming. And I remember battling through that for the first couple of years. And then a professor at Multnomah who, was a, who became a mentor and a dear friend of mine, one day he said to me, Benjamin, you don't need to figure out what you want to do for the rest of your life. You got to figure out what kind of man you want to become. What you do is going to change. But who do you want to become? And so I ask you this morning, and not just college, everybody here, what are you becoming? Another way to put it is, what are you continuing in? What kind of human being are you growing into? What kind do you want to be? Do you want to be somebody who's horrible and impatient and cruel and always fearful and worried about the future and terrified about money and terrified about jobs and worried about where it's all, do you want to become that person? Do you want to become a person who's at peace, totally free, filled with a kind of love you can't even describe with words? And if that's what you want to become, are you continuing in that way of life right now or are you waiting to start that way of life later on? Because right now, circumstances are just, you know, I just have to be freaking terrified all the time. <laughs> Where are we? What kind of person are you becoming? All right, so that's the, that's the sort of background question that I want you to just sort of hold on to as we engage now with this second half of Paul's big sermon. This is the only sermon in the New Testament that we have from start to finish from the Apostle Paul. We have excerpts elsewhere, but this one in Acts 13, and this is early Paul, you know. Right now he's preaching to a group of people in Asia, Asia Minor, and, and in the future he'll write a letter to the people of Galatia, and this is that area. So in many ways, the people in the audience right now could very well be who he's writing to later when he writes to the Galatian churches, all right? Paul, we were told on the front end of his sermon, we were told that he was preaching to a mixed crew. 
Lots of Jewish folks, but also Gentiles who are uh, God-fearers, we're told. Meaning, they love God, they're committed to God, but they perhaps have not gone through some of the rituals and laws to enter fully into the Judaism way of life. They're probably not circumcised. They may not observe Sabbath the way that a Jewish person does, etc. Right? They might eat uh, BLTs, and, and you don't do that if you're Jewish, that kind of thing. But they love God. They're in the audience. So they're wondering, they're listening. So we have this mixed crew, and, and the word about Jesus is out. People want to hear about and know about, he created quite a stir, especially in the Jewish community. Because what Jesus did was wrong. It was so bad that he had to die. We have to get rid of this toxicity, this Jesus, right? So they've heard that, but then they've also heard really amazing Jewish people are following him now. Really amazing Jewish leaders have turned to him. In fact, we had this story about this amazing Pharisee named Saul who was out persecuting the church, and then he met this Jesus and totally changed. So there's like, he's a terrible criminal we need to kill, but he's also somebody who's really, really appealing to some of the best Jewish people we've ever known. What do we do with this Jesus guy? So that's in the audience, okay? I'm trying to get you into the mindset of what it's like Paul is talking to these people. They, they're devoted to God. There's a mix in the audience, and they've heard a lot about Jesus. And so here comes Paul, the traveling teacher, and, they, and the synagogue rulers have said, would you give us an exhortation? Why don't you preach to us? Tell us, give us a challenge. And Paul's like, I'd love to. I'd be happy to. And so he goes for it. And he starts his first part of the sermon talking about the history. And he works through it really quick. And so last week, and if you want to hear the first part of this sermon that I'm doing, go to our website when there's power on. And then, because right now it'll be super boring. But go when there's power on and you can listen to the first part of the sermon. But there, I tried to make the point that Paul is pointing to their history to show them that God operates methodologically. He operates in a way that can be understood. So he takes them, he says, for 450 years, you guys were, you were in this stage, 400 years of being enslaved. Then God prepared you through that to receive the leader, Moses. And, and Moses came, and then you followed Moses, and then he prepared you through judges, and he prepared you through prophets, and he prepared you through kings. God has always been collectively preparing this people group, Israel, for this moment that this Jesus came. They're like, well, this is abrasive and weird. Who is Jesus? He's like, look, it's always abrasive and weird when God sends us his message or a formidable leader, but it's good. Don't freak out just yet. And then he continues on, all right? He reminds them of their history. It's a community that has been formed by those kinds of leaders. So he's pointing, and they're all agreeing, yeah, we remember those leaders. Then he gets into David. Now he's talking about at the end, right where we left off last week, in the shadow of the greatest, most just, most merciful king of all, King David. In his shadow comes this light. It's a son of David. He comes from the line of David. It's the light we've been waiting for. In fact, it's a light that will overwhelm all shadows and all darkness. It's a son of David that's even greater than David. Indeed, it is the one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for. This is good news because this is freedom. I'm going to get to that in a second, why this was so important to them. This is a grace a charisse, a gift. This is a gift that has come to us. This Messiah we have dreamed about and hoped for forever is here. So now, will the community that forms around him become a good news community? Jesus comes with the euangelion, the gospel, the good news. A community is forming around him, and he's wanting to say this is a good thing while they're worried about whether or not this is a good thing, okay? So that's where we'll pick it up again. If you can see, 
Turn to Acts 13, 26. <laughs> if you can't see, that's okay. I'll try to read loud. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay, good. Okay, Acts 13, 26 is where we're going to pick it up. And here's what I want to say. In what follows here, Paul is going to do something that is much greater than inviting people to believe in the gospel. You might say, well, how could you do anything more important than that? Pay attention to the language that he'll use, like continuing in grace. I want you to think about that deeply this morning. What does it mean to continue in grace? Pay attention to becoming a light. What are we becoming? Pay attention to that kind of language to see how he moves from mere believing the gospel into becoming the gospel. Okay? Acts 13, I think I said 26, I meant 36. Go to verse 36. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, notice that David did something for the Israelites that was really good for those people in his day and in their way. He served his purpose then, and then he died. Or we, we like to soften it sometimes in the New Testament. He fell asleep. It means he's dead. And he was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Your Bible probably maybe says corruption. The idea is his body did not decompose in a hole. That is the absolute number one most important key to understanding Jesus, I think. Paul talks about it that way. If this dude didn't raise from the dead, we're idiots. Really dumb people. This is a waste of time. So Jesus' resurrection is crucial. He did not rot in a hole on the side of a hill. He didn't decay. And, and this is important in part because the prophets said, okay, you're going to be looking for this Messiah. Here's a way to know him. The, the, the Father won't allow him to see corruption. And so here comes Paul, and he's like, here's that guy. He didn't see decay. Yes, he died, but he rose from the dead. This means a lot more than, wow, he's so cool and powerful, dude. It's way more than that. It means that we have physical, tangible evidence that this man is the Messiah that people have been waiting for. He has an ability to raise from death, to conquer it. That is an ability to defeat sin. Do you see it? If sin causes death, then the one who can beat death is beating the cause of death, which is sin. The death defeater is the sin defeater, or we might say the sin forgiver. Everyone knew that the law did not ultimately forgive sin. Maybe not everybody. I'm sure there's those types who are like, I did a bunch of good stuff, so I deserve great stuff or whatever. But most, I think, we have evidence for this, most understood, you know, we still have a problem in our world and in our community, and the evidence for our problem is the cemetery. That proves we're still not quite there. Something is still wrecking our lives, all right? Every faithful Jew, however pious and righteous, still knew that he or she needed forgiveness. That was what we talk about when we say they had a messianic hope. They wanted the Messiah. They wanted forgiveness. So even though they had the great King David, a great lineage, a great law, a great temple, a great system of worship, it all seemed to function really well. They still knew we're waiting for somebody that can fix this death problem. And God seems to have promised that that's going to happen. And here comes the Apostle Paul, bald-headed, bow-legged, short dude who can't talk very well. And he says, guess what, guys? That problem is starting to be solved right now. Jesus of Nazareth is no joke. Verse 38. Therefore, my friends, he says, and whenever you see a, you guys are going to learn this in Bible 101. Whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? Uh -huh. 
What is it there for? Well, you ask, in this case, you look back to what just came before, and it says, God raised Jesus from the dead. Therefore, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Jesus says to you, for all of the things that you have done that you hate about yourself, for that deep, deep, lingering shame that goes back to your college years, back to your childhood, back to what you did or what was done to you, all of the darkest thoughts that you have and you think them and you say to yourself, I can't believe I even thought that. I am so broken. You've heard voices your whole life telling you you're worthless because of those things. But the voice of Jesus says, I forgive you. I forgive you completely. The forgiveness of sins through this Jesus is proclaimed to you. Through him, verse 39, through him everyone who believes is set free from every sin a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. All right? And now, I think, he just laid down the best possible news that any God-fearing person could want to hear. Now he drops the hammer with a dire warning. You're like, whoa, this is great news. And then, boom, here comes the warning. Verse 40, take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, now he quotes, he quotes uh, back into, what is he quoting here? I forgot now. Habakkuk 17, Habakkuk something. All right, there we go. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if somebody told you. This is the prophet Habakkuk way back. You guys, if you've read Habakkuk, he's sort of, He's sort of lamenting right out of the gate about how all these bad guys are really winning in the world while the faithful folks seem to be losing hard. And he's crying out to God and he's just like, what the heck? And then God speaks through the prophet Habakkuk to say, there'll come a time when those of you who think you're in the winning angle are, are, are made, you're made to see that you're not. <laughs> okay, so he's, Paul is tapping back into that moment saying, You've got to ask yourselves where you're really at in relationship to God and his truth, all right? I think to make sense of this too, you can scroll back to last week, verse 26 and 7. I'll read it to you now. This is Paul still, same sermon, but here he was warning them as well. Fellow children of Abraham, you Hebrew people, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. It is to us, Okay. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers didn't recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. You see the great irony there. It's a great irony. You look at that and you're like, okay, they're reading the Bible every week and Sabbath, and as they're reading the Bible and they're reading the prophets, the prophets are saying, hey, there are these folks who reject God and reject his truth. They, they set themselves as the enemies of God. And you can imagine a bunch of good Bible readers sitting around saying, oh, gosh, those guys are the enemies of God. Oh, that's bad. Those guys are the bad guys. And then, and then Paul's saying, yeah, you're those guys. <laughs> They're like, Wait, what? It just totally messes them up. Paul's warning says, you literally listen to the words of the prophets every week. You love studying the Bible, but you're missing the point entirely. They saw the way of Jesus as a threat to their own way of life. They were continuing in something. They were continuing on in a way of life. And in the way of life that they chose to continue living in, Jesus was absolutely not going to work. What he was about didn't fit with the way they wanted to live. We might say they saw Jesus' way of life and they saw themselves as categorically unfit to live it. They saw his way of life and they said, that's not for me. 
We're too good for that. In their minds, they thought, Jesus is just too low. He's too dirty. He's too wild. He's too liberal. He hangs out with liberals. He hangs out with dirty criminal people. He's too disrespectful toward the great and honorable religious institution that we have built. And he's, he's coming in to usurp and to take attention away from what we've done. And the prophet said that folks who reject the Messiah are rejecting life. When you reject life, there's kind of one thing left. Death. Final, ultimate, eternal death. Well, all right. Now the people are both intrigued. <laughs> We've got some good news about Jesus. Now this guy, this bold-legged, bald-headed dude here up in, uh, he's preaching to us now. He's warning us and using prophetic language saying we're possibly going to, what? So here you can hear the murmuring, and we go to verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath day. Huh? That's kind of why we're all here, right? I come, you guys hear the word of God preached, you say, this is good stuff, let's come back next Sunday. So we could do this, we're carrying on the tradition. So they say, come on, let's do this again. Verse 43, when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and the devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them. Now Paul and Barnabas are talking with these folks, and notice what it says. This is a key to the passage. He urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying, and they heaped abuse on him. Well, that's very interesting. Notice. It's not that they were filled with concern about Paul's questionable theology. It's not that they were just hearing a lot of new stuff and they just needed some time to process it for a little while because it was all just so earth-shattering. Why does the Bible, the Bible tells us what they were upset about in the word jealousy. They were jealous. We are the righteous ones. We know that our intentions and our motives are good. It is a scientific fact, you know. It's what we are. We're the good ones, not you, and certainly not Jesus. I've even heard that he harvested wheat on the Sabbath day. What? Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. I heard that he and his little 12-person terrorist cell threatened to tear down the entire temple. Oh, yeah, I heard that too. He said it. He said it. I heard it. Oh, yeah. I heard he associates with drunks and swindlers and prostitutes and tax. <gasps> oh, yeah. He is a bad guy. We don't do any of that bad stuff. And so they heaped abuse on Paul and Barnabas. They called them liars. They threatened them and they hurt them with their words. They abused them. Verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas got really sad and scared and went home and closed their closet door. <laughs> no, no. Paul and Barnabas have Jesus with them. And so they respond boldly, it says. We had to speak the word of God to you first. And since you rejected and don't consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. Oh, what a statement. You don't consider yourselves worth it. You don't consider yourselves worth being alive. And since that's the case, we're going to turn now to the Gentiles. We're heading out. We're going elsewhere. It's time to dust the feet off and move on. Boy, isn't that the most wonderful and terrifying characteristic of our God? He doesn't force it on you. It's wonderful. He's not a bully. He's not a dictator. 
He doesn't force you. But with that wonderfulness, you also have those horrible statements like in Romans 1 where he says, I let them go. And he'll let you go to become what you want to become. Do you want to become life? Or do you want to become death? He lets them go. He says, if you're not going to pay attention, we'll go elsewhere. God's not a bully. He doesn't make you become good if you don't want to. He doesn't force you to choose him. He loves you without condition. He loves you without reservation and gives to you graciously. He invites you, always inviting. He shows you clearly who he is and what he's about, and then you have a choice to make. How will you respond to this message, his gospel? When Paul earlier in the sermon has said he's speaking to you, he doesn't mean you like this massive generation. He's saying you people sitting here in the synagogue with me. You understand that Jesus, through his spirit right now, here in this unplugged service, speaking to you. And that's, I'm not Jesus. But I believe that Jesus' invitation to you is always going forth. And today you're hearing another one. Today, if you hear the voice of God, how will you respond? That's all through the Bible. Now, along these lines, I think that verse 46 is just insane. It's the craziest moment. Mackenzie, who read earlier, she and I were talking about this passage earlier this week. And it's just, it feels, it feels like Paul is sticking his fingers through my skull into my brain and just twisting it all up. I just can't quite think of, it looks, 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 look at what he's saying. It looks like he's saying, you are literally judging yourselves to be unworthy while you're arguing that you're the most worthy. Literally, if you're saying to yourself, I have really, really done well and God is going to need to let me come into heaven because of what I've done. That is you saying I'm not worthy of heaven. And you say, but no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I'm the most worthy. And he says, yep, that's the attitude that kills you. By rejecting Jesus, you're saying that you're not worth saving that you're not worth giving life to. It's almost like he's saying that they are dead, isn't it? Someone who is not worthy of life is destined for death, I think. And you can see the eyebrows squinting and furled. Everybody's getting angry in the room. What the heck are you talking about? I'm not unworthy of eternal life. You, you're the one freaking out here. We're calmer than you, dude. You're the one who's freaking out. You're the one who says, dude, I am about the most worthy person for eternal life you can imagine. I do my devotions every single day. I go to synagogue every week like I should. I don't eat food that I'm not supposed to. I don't listen to naughty music. I don't watch naughty movies or do any dirty dancing like Patrick Swayze. I don't do any of that stuff. I keep it clean. I keep it good. I don't wear immodest clothing. I don't smoke marijuana or tobacco or even crack. None of that. <laughs> Did I already mention how dedicated to the Bible I am? I'm the most dedicated I know. I'm the most worthy person around for eternal life. And there's Paul. And he goes straight. <laughs> I imagine him like Luke Skywalker in this moment. He's just like, every word you just said is wrong. <laughs> you know? You guys are so missing it. Moses... Remember how he went to Moses first in the first part? He says, Moses was a, he was a, look at what he was to you. He was a gracious gift. It wasn't that God was up there saying, okay, oh, ha, ha, finally, they started behaving well, I'll send Moses to them. <laughs> that wasn't it at all. They were lost in slavery, blind in their bondage, and God mercifully, graciously gave them the gift of a leader and salvation out of Egypt. This is the pattern Paul has always wanted to say. It's not because of how awesome you are. It's the same with the law. The law to you was a gift. It was a grace. At that time, in that way, it's what you needed. I was preparing this community. It pulled you into a better way of life. You didn't get this gift 
of Jesus because you avoided smoking and premarital sex and Patrick Swayze. You didn't, this isn't why Jesus is coming to you. Jesus comes to you from God because he loves you. And it was the same with the prophets. God sent you spokespeople, but you killed the prophets. It was the same with King David. You were the one, you demanded the wicked, the king Saul. And God graciously gave you David. It's the same way with Jesus. He's a grace to you. He's a gift. Now, more than ever in history, more than ever in the future to come. Notice what I just said there. More than all of the history past, more than all of what's still to come, I have given you the ultimate grace in my son, Jesus. He's the ultimate king, the promised king, the Messiah. That's, I think, we're into the heartbeat of the sermon, and it has everything to do with that grace. I want to do a little excursus here on grace, because I think it's really important to understand what Paul is saying. Too quickly, we think of grace as unmerited favor, all right? That's not wrong or bad. That's a great way to understand grace. Uh, or we, sometimes we say, mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. You've heard that kind of language. We say grace is unmerited favor, okay? That's true. It's just way too small of a definition. Um, some of you in this room, I would say, I'll look this direction, although there's other college students over here. Some of you in this room, before the finals week is over this term and the rooster crows twice, will approach one of your professors with the age-old plea for grace. <laughs> hey, I stayed up last night eating Doritos and playing Dance Dance Revolution all night long. Can I still get a good grade? You know, can you show me some grace? That's how we think of grace. I'm a teacher sometimes, and I teach college classes, and when that happens, uh, just be warned. I say, yes, I will show you grace, absolutely. Grace is truthful. And the truth is that you failed to do the work, so you're not going to receive what you would have if you had done the work. And by treating you with this kind of human dignity, you will grow and change and become stronger and wiser and more alive, so that all of the foolishness of our youth that thinks about wasting the whole night in front of a screen as a good idea will turn into a life of wisdom where you pursue things that are valuable and rich, that love God and love neighbor. So yes, I'll show you grace by teaching you how to become alive. It's not just a pass. God's not, he's not in the business of just leaving us where we're at. He's transforming us. Grace is a gift that changes you far more than it pleasures you. Isn't that Jesus' call to suffer and die with him? That's not a call to come have your best life now. That's a call to suffer and die with him. It turns you into a giver, because that's the essence of grace, gift, rather than a consumer. It makes you into grace. You become grace. And grace is a gift that must be received. In the first century world, a free gift was understood very differently than what you and I think when we think of free gift. <coughs> Excuse me. Think about if you were going to go to a big um, uh, benefit dinner, what is it? fundraiser, fundraiser dinner, where you pay for a meal. Let's say you pay 500 bucks to donate to the charity. You can only write off a portion of that meal for your taxes and you, uh, of that donation. Let's say I give 500 bucks. I can only call it 450 of a donation because 50 of it I received a benefit from. I got to have a hamburger or whatever, right? A free gift can have no strings attached at all. It can have no instructions. It can have nothing. It's, it's, if I said, here's 100 bucks, but you have to do this with it, and I expect this from you as a result, you'd say... That's a nice gift, but it's not a free gift. A free gift is when there's none of that other stuff around it. That's how we think about gifts. It's not how a first century Jewish leader thought about gift giving or anybody in their day. 
And that's really important because when Paul starts to talk about continuing in grace, we kind of want to know what he means, not what we think of grace. He thought of a free gift as something that was given without a thought to merit. So that's what we've already established. I give this to you not because you're awesome. I give it to you because I want to give. So that's true. But then with that gift came an expectation of a social bond that forms. Other places in the Bible use language like, don't throw your great stuff to stuff that doesn't matter, or pearls before swine. There's this language of gift giving all through the New Testament and the first century world, where when I give a gift to you, I want to create a social bond with you. There's an expectation that you'll reciprocate, and it's not that you give me back what I gave to you, but you give me thanks and gratitude. This is how their whole society was formed. There's also an expectation that I use the gift in the way it was intended. So imagine if you are broke as a joke and the rent is coming up and you're $500 shy. And I come to you and I say, here's $500. Now, I've given you a gift, not because you're awesome, but because I love you. You can just say, cool, whatever, or you can say thank you. One creates a social bond, one does not. And then if you take that gift and you use it for lollipops and cheese, <laughs> rather than paying your rent, you see, you might say, well, it was a free gift. I'm able to do with it whatever I want, but you can see where now our relationship is weird, isn't it? I gave you a gift to use in a certain way, and you used it in a really jacked up way. And so now I'm, I still love you, but you have to wonder what our relationship is really like. You can feel that, right? That's the way grace is understood. So continuing in the gift of God has something to do with a gratefulness toward him. It has something to do with a deep social bond with him. It has something to do with wanting to use the gift of eternal life that he gave you in the way he intended. And I'll tell you what, when you're doing that individually, your life is changing for the better. When we're doing that as a community, our life is changing for the better. I'd argue we're becoming the gospel, bound deeply to the Father, trusting in Jesus fully. You've got to let that sink in. Grace, notice this now, grace, understood rightly, breaks down every single system of human worth. I'm awesome because I never did that naughty thing. I'm awesome because I was born in this country, or I have this color skin, or I have this much money, or I don't have any money. We have so many ways of valuing one another, and Grace says, guess what? You're all in this thing together. I love bluegrass music. There's this band, Old Crow Medicine Show. I love, great band. They have this song. We're all in this thing together. Walking the line between faith and fear. Grace is a leveling. High priest or dirty criminal, we both desperately need God's life because we can't create life. Grace breaks it down. And notice the kind of community that can form if none of us thinks we're better than the other. If all of us says to one another, hey, you're desperate for Jesus, guess what? So am I. Rather than, hey, why are you so bad? <laughs> oh, jeez. You know, that does, that's not community life. That sucks. It's no fun. Grace is free. Okay. It breaks down our systems of worth and value. It creates a bond with God. Notice it creates a bond with one another. Which brings us to the end of the sermon. What was the purpose of God's gracious gift to his people? Why did he give them salvation in this world? The promise of life to come. Life with him forever. Why did he do it? So they could sleep better? So they could form communities that kept the sinners out? Is that why God saves people? We can assemble and purify our community and keep the bad ones out? Maybe God assembled us together for the people who aren't here yet.
Verse 47, for this is what the Lord commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Wow. I thought only Jesus brings salvation. Why is Paul suggesting that you and I bring salvation to people? I remember once praying. Dear friend wanted to come and stay at my house. His friend is living out of the traditional and good moral ethics of Christianity by, uh, by, by, by living in a sexual relationship out of wedlock. Historic Christianity doesn't hold to that. Dear friend, can I, can I and my boyfriend come and stay with you, Ben? And, I'm, and I've been trained and conditioned my whole life to say, oh my gosh, I don't want to support that kind of stuff, but they're a dear friend, what do I do? And I just start praying, God, would you please help this friend of mine? God, would you intervene? God, would you change their heart? God, I need you to break into their heart and life. God, they need your salvation. And then it sort of dawned on me, maybe God put me a best friend into their life to be loving and gracious rather than quietly huddled up in the corner praying that God would do something. I think God finally broke through to me and said, I did something. I put you in their life. Now, do you want to continue in my grace by being to those people what Jesus would have been? Or do you want to be like these people who think that they're just too good for that? I made you a light for the Gentiles. I made you a light for the Gentiles. Do you see it? Being a light like Jesus means continuing in the grace of God. This is the grace by which you are saved, Paul will say elsewhere. We're saved by grace. That should blow up your understanding of what salvation is too. You're saved by grace, which is what you're living right now if you are in Jesus. And in Jesus is a life of total freedom. Biblical freedom, you've got to understand this. Biblical freedom is freedom to become fully alive in Christ. That means freedom to live in the way of Christ. American freedom is freedom from restraint. Freedom to do whatevs. Don't read that definition of freedom into the New Testament or it will mess you up. Because you'll start to hear the Bible saying, do whatever you want, it's great because we're all going to heaven because Jesus' blood, whatever. That's not right. <laughs> and we read it that way all the time and it's not right. Jesus' sacrifice and witness and life shows us we don't actually have to sin to make it. We're free from that idea. We're free to live in His way. So, in Christ is freedom in that sense. And what is life in Christ? What is it that will shine in the dark world and bring hope of salvation to every single part of this world? It's life in the church. There's utterly no concept of life in Christ that doesn't include a deep, meaningful belonging within this local church. Sorry, not this local church, like if you're not at Central Bible, you're going to hell. That, that would be a weird thing to preach, you know. <laughs> it might really draw a crowd, but it'll bring a weird... That's not what I mean. In his local church, the idea that you and Jesus are just your own thing and church doesn't matter is something a lot of people love. It's not anywhere in the Bible at all. So just know that. It's really important. Life with Christ is life with His community, His community that's continuing in grace and living in the ways of Jesus. This is the place of formative salvation. It's amazing. Jesus' terms, then, are the only way we live. At Central Bible, we have this little quip we use all the time. Welcoming everybody into Jesus' life. That can wrongly stop at just welcoming everybody. It's just like the idea is to just be welcoming. That's not what we're talking about. But that's a great thing to be welcoming, but, but we're welcoming people into the freeing, 
specific life set out by Jesus. And I'm going to end with four things that, are, that characterize continuing in grace and living in the life of Christ. And not one of them is going to be shocking to you unless you've never, ever heard the Bible before. And if that's the case, that's awesome that you're here and listening and welcome and hear it afresh. Maybe some of us need to hear it afresh. Here it is. Living in Christ, which I believe is continuing in His grace, looks like this. We die. We die. Shining in this world, becoming the gospel, means being crucified. We get baptized to demonstrate our crucifixion with Christ. But we often miss the fact that we are actively dying every single day to the ways of living and thinking that we learned before or outside of Jesus. We let down our old flames and pick up a new fire. That was in the worship song we just sang. We die ethnic and cultural traditions, value systems, they dissolve in the life of Jesus. Old value systems not given by him. Our dress codes, our language codes, our relationship codes, food and drink, smoke and substance, tattoos, piercing, every single social norm that we've gathered along our way of life dies. It all goes to rest. We put our way of life and the ways of the world to death so we can listen to Jesus freshly and let him tell us what actually matters. Most of the stuff I used to think mattered in Christianity doesn't matter at all. And to the degree we focus on that, we miss what really does matter. I hate to break it to you this morning, but most of what modern-day conservative evangelical Christianity calls righteous has very little to do with Jesus. I knew this as a youth pastor. Very few parents wanted their children to believe the gospel. The parents wanted their children to be good and to get a good job that paid for a good house and a good car. The last thing they wanted the pastor telling them was to not worry about that stuff and to instead think about what kind of people they wanted to become. The gospel is abrasive to our ways of life, so we die to our ways of life, and we pick up Jesus. Paul, I said before, is writing to the Galatian churches. Here he says it. I have been cru- In Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Paul's entire system of holiness was put to death when he decided to follow Jesus. So that's one of the ways we shine. We stop perpetuating these old traditions we have as though they're the righteous holiness of God. And we say Jesus Christ is the righteous holiness of God. The second thing is we forfeit the rat race. It's a little bit like dying to ourselves. Degrees, financial security, having all the food and shelter and clothing I need, these are the obsessions of our day, right? We step out of that and we see in Jesus saying, I don't even have a place to, I don't have a pillow. I don't have a place to put my head. A fox even has a hole in the ground to sleep in. I don't even have a hole in the ground, you know. His whole notion was, I am not going to fall into the trap of American consumerism where I spend the first two-thirds of my life getting tons of stuff and the last third of my life trying to downsize it. (laughs) That's America, We bow out of that rat race and we enter into something totally different. Philippians 3, Paul writes about it. Whatever were gains to me before, I consider it a bunch of worthless crap compared to what I have in Jesus. That was nothing. So he says, I've bowed out of the race I used to be in and I'm running a different kind of race now. And he says, so I can gain Christ and he says, and be found in Him. I want to be found living in the life of Jesus. The third one is we embrace the dirty cross. When we see a famous and glorious and well-loved Christian celebrity, we're not that impressed because we know that all of what it takes to become a celebrity in our world today is very much the same as it was in the first century. 
And that's why Jesus was considered worthless. He was dirty. He was rejected. He was stupid. He did things wrong. We see somebody who's humbly giving herself in the slums of Calcutta as more Christ-like than the fame and fortune of TV preachers and the celebrityism. The cross changes what we see as heroic, virtuous, and good. Embracing the cross changes what we value. And it looks dumb to the world, 1 Corinthians 1. We preach Christ crucified, and that's just foolishness to many people, Jews and Gentiles alike. The last one I would say is we embrace all humankind. By continuing in the grace of God and the life of Jesus, we live in the grace that He has given to us and that He is. And we're taught by Him to welcome all. To welcome all regardless of their sin. I know that's hard to hear. We're afraid. But Jesus welcomed every single person regardless of their sin. He walked away from them when they rejected too and said, let's go to another town. But he opens the invite without preference, without uh, favoritism. So when we are living in grace, we understand uh, that, that Abraham's family, if you will, the Israelite people, you and I are grafted into Israel. This community of God's people is a lot bigger than we think. It goes well beyond the parameters that we've grown accustomed to. It's a massive and diverse community. It's more varied than anybody had ever dreamed possible. So in Galatians 3, he says, in this gospel, in the grace of Jesus, there's no Jew or Gentile. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. Why? We're all one in Christ Jesus. You see? It's a way of life in community where we don't value, we don't equip, we don't invest in people in different ways based on if they're male or female, wealthy or poor, black or white or Chinese or Korean or Canadian or from the deep south. We always are expanding a very varied and diverse community. The marks of Jewish ethnicity are no longer important for your life. Jesus' way of life is. That is my hope and vision for our church, that this would be a community of grace and that in it we would have specific ways of life we live according to Jesus. And those are big time about forgiveness, welcome, and following Him. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.